Thank you so much, Pastor Chris. It is good to be with you this morning. I'll give you a little bit of an advertisement about who we are. Uh, so 43 years of ministry, every church I pastored was in trouble, in debt, in decline, needed to turn around and go in a new direction. That was the ministry God called me to, so we learned a lot of things the difficult way. Uh, but prayer became such a huge component uh, to that. And then a number of years ago, uh, a dear friend of mine by the name of Daniel Henderson, he was pastoring in uh, California. We became really good friends, and I was in his churches in the States, and he was in uh, mine here in Canada. And we started what's called the 6-4 Fellowship. It's based on Acts chapter 6 and verse 4 that says we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Now, all of our training for our pastors and seminaries and Bible colleges is all on the Word. There's not a seminary in our country has a class on prayer. Uh, and so prayer is the other wing of the seminary training, and that's what we desire to bring to them. So we provide church leadership, coaching, but not on leadership. We want to lead the leaders and to pray and to become conduits of prayer and incubators for prayer. And so we exist as a ministry to ignite the heart of the church to seek the face of God by coaching its leaders. And so we provide coaching for pastors. We provide coaching uh, for the regular folks who sit in the pew. For example, we have a 30-day all-virtual coaching uh, that's done on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And we meet once a week online for just over an hour. Uh, and we do that. We do a 90-day for the praying pastor. How do we embed prayer into the local church? We do a six-month event that would include the pastor, key elders, and staff members on how do we turn around. That's more for a turnaround church, more so than a church plant. Uh, we do whatever else we can possibly do to help the church in any way, shape, or form. Uh, so I love the local church. I spent my entire life in the local church. Came to Christ as a boy, the age of 11, in a church that rarely ever preached the gospel. Somehow it happened that day, and I got saved. Uh, came to know Christ. Uh, by the age of 16, I was already starting to preach in my home church. My pastor took me under his wing. I was doing hospital visitation, all those kinds of things. I started singing at weddings and funerals when I was 12 years old. All I've done is the local church. Uh, and so when I retired, uh, and so I retired from pastoring to start this ministry. So I don't take a salary from it. Every bit of support we raise goes right back into the ministry so that we can afford to take it to churches that can't afford to have us come. Uh, and so our nation's a big country, uh, and so it costs money to go from one side to the other. And a lot of the churches, the average 85% of all churches in Canada have less than 100 people in them. And so it becomes a challenge. So if you'd like to hear a little bit more about our ministry or sign up for our email that we do, we only do six to eight a year. Uh, my dear friends south of the border do like six or eight a day, uh, and so, which means you don't read them. Uh, so we send them out. There's cards look just like this out on the table in the lobby, and you can uh, grab a hold of that one of those. Just fill it out, and I'll be glad to add you to our email list. Anyways, that's the end of the advertisement. You didn't bring me here to advertise the ministry. Uh, you invited me to come and preach the Word of God this morning, and I am thrilled to be able to do that. Uh, and Pastor Chris is right. I mean, my daughter said, Dad, you're preaching the weekend I'm away. Her husband, Josh, is working. My granddaughter, Taylor's with at the retreat. My grandson, Trent, is here. Uh, my wife is home in bed. She's not feeling well this morning, so uh, they'll do anything to get away from Dad's preaching. Okay. <laughs> 
And you may feel the same in about two or three hours from now. No, I'm just kidding on the two or three hours. Pastor Chris said four to five. No, that was 45 minutes, wasn't it? Okay. Anyways, I'm going to invite you to turn in your copy of the Scriptures, whether it's a written Bible or an electronic version, to John chapter 15. Uh, you'll, you'll know the context of the passage. Jesus, of course, is teaching. He's teaching on the true vine and his father being the vine dresser and all of those kinds. Of, we're going to pick the narrative up at verse 7. I'm going to invite you to stand for the reading of the Word of God. I'm reading to you this morning from the ESV. Um, which is not my preferred version, but it's the one I brought with me because uh, it's the smaller one. But anyways, uh, verse 7 of John chapter 15. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Pray with me. Father, thank you for the privilege that we have to look into your word this morning, and we recognize that your spirit is the great teacher. And so would you, through the ministry of your Spirit, open the words of Scripture to us and apply them deep to our hearts. Lord, as we listen to your Word, every one of us in this room this morning will make a decision on how we will respond to it. Help us to respond the way you would choose for us. And for this, we will be grateful in Jesus' name. Amen. So how to live a life of impact or to experience personal renewal, that when enough individuals in a congregation experience renewal, then congregational renewal begins to happen. That's what we want to look at this morning as we look at this text. If you abide in me, that's the passage for us. I am convinced that many of us are competitors. Now, this weekend, I had the privilege of taking my grandson back and forth to his volleyball tournament. My wife told me before I went to the very first game, Lindsay, don't holler too loud. I don't know why she would tell me such a thing. Lindsay, don't, don't call them out. I'm thinking, don't, don't, don't pass it to that guy anymore, you know. I'm a competitor. Most of us are competitors. I am convinced that the guy who came up with the phrase, it doesn't matter if you win or lose, it's how you play the game, was a loser. That's why he came up with that statement. Because you want to win. When our children were small, my wife would say, Lindsay, let the children win. I said, no. They need to learn now that life is difficult. The problem is now we have a whole generation that's never heard the word no and have never lost. When I was a kid, you didn't get an award for showing up. You got a beating for not showing up. A spanking. Okay. Try to be a little politically correct. We want to win. And I am convinced that many of us deep down want to do something of great value when it comes to the kingdom. We want to be kingdom winners. We want to achieve for the glory of God. The problem with it is that by nature, fallen nature, we are achievers. We want to work for things instead of allowing the Spirit of God to accomplish it in and through us. So if we follow the six simple steps of these few verses, 
We can experience kingdom advancement through our lives as we partner together as brothers and sisters in Christ, oftentimes across denominational lines, across lines where we will disagree, but we hold the core values that are absolutely critical if our nation is going to experience a renewal. We are not going to politic our way out of the change that needs to happen in this great nation. It's only going to change when the people of God from coast to coast begin to act like the people of God. If you abide in me. The word abide simply means to remain. It's, it's about being stuck to, uh, being in Christ. If you abide in me. Another word that we could use there would be Christ-centeredness. We want Jesus to be the very center of our lives. I remember the night my wife and I met. Now, we've been married for over 43 years. I remember the night we met, where we were, what she was wearing, all the events surrounding that event. See, I had been invited out to this little church in the country to sing a song uh, at a night of music. I showed up at this little building that wasn't any bigger than the very centerpiece of this church. I had these songs that had big endings. I had been singing in a theater that seats 1,500 people without a sound system, so I can let it fly. I got there, I thought, well, I can't hit these notes. I'm going to deafen these poor people. And so I tried to soften it down on the first song, missed the note. I thought, I'm never coming back. Let it go. Uh, and so the second song, I hit the notes, hurt everybody's ears. Anyways, that's the night I met my wife. Leaving the church that night, I asked an elderly gentleman from my home church who had taken a group of us out there as teenagers, because I knew he knew her family. So I'm asking him questions about her family because I wanted to find out if her family was good enough to associate with my family. Uh, and so I'm asking questions. I'm doing my research. Every young man in this room knows that when you ask a girl out on a first date, your goal is to get the second date. You're already thinking number two, so you do your homework. I wanted to know, what was her favorite color? What was her favorite food? What was her favorite flower? What were the things that I could easily do that would please her. In very simple terms, that's what Christ-centeredness means. What's Jesus' favorite food? What's his favorite color? What are the things that I can do in and through my life that will bring pleasure to Jesus Christ, that will bring him glory is the word we often use if we're going to use all of our church words, but what are the things that will just please him? Because when we're in a love relationship, we want to bring pleasure to the one whom we love. 43 plus years later, I still want to know what are the things that I can do that will please my wife. 50 plus years later, I still want to know what are the things that I can do that will please Jesus. Because he's supposed to be the very center of my life. That is supposed to be the most important relationship I have, bar none. If you abide in me. Are we so consumed with what is it that will bring pleasure to Jesus Christ each and every day? Or do we just remove him from our thinking process as we go through most of our days? I am convinced in the secularization of the church of Jesus Christ in Canada that we hardly ever think of Jesus from Sunday to Sunday. 
And if we're going to experience renewal, we need to think of him every day. Should be the first thought when we wake in the morning. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for a brand new day. We ought to start talking to him when we're having our shower, getting ready for the day. Lord, how do you want to use me today for your kingdom? Who's going to cross my path that instead of me complaining or growling about them at work, I'm supposed to share a word of testimony or a gospel track? If you abide in me, Christ-centeredness. And then Jesus goes on and says, and my words abide in you. We need to be a Bible-anchored people, if you're following the outline on the back of your bulletin. A Bible-anchored people. Now, when Jesus was speaking, you got to understand the culture of the day. Words were critical. They didn't have this precious book, all bound nice for them to carry around, or on their cell phone that they hid somewhere in their long gown. They hung on every word that was spoken. Most of the Jews of that day would have had, if not the entire Old Testament memorized, most of it. They would have listened to their mothers teach them day in and day out. They clung to the words of Jesus. We're getting close to the end, and Jesus' words are important. Just like words of dying people in our own lives are critical. We want to hang on them. We listen to them. We want to know what they're trying to say to us <clears throat> as they communicate. And so if my, if my words abide in you. So we need to be a Bible-anchored people. What does God's Word say? <clears throat> Excuse me. I am convinced that this precious book has the answers to every question we have. It'll even tell you how to buy a new car. Now, some of you don't believe that, but it does because it tells you to be a good steward, how to handle your money. So that means you'll buy a Toyota, you know, uh, because they last longer, you know. Uh, no, uh, but it deals with our finances. It deals with our families. It deals with our relationships. It, it deals with school. It deals with government. We need to be a people who are convinced that God's Word is true and that we are going to live it out day by day and moment by moment, that His Word needs to saturate our lives. We need to be students of it, and we need to be students that put it into its context. It's easy to cherry-pick a verse and make it say whatever you want it to say. I mean, if I wanted to manipulate the Scriptures this morning, I could make it say anything I wanted it, but that's not the goal of the Word of God. It's a living, active Word that changes our lives as we surrender ourselves to it. And so we read it, we study it, we get to know it. It's a precious love letter. Now, when I was a young man, I was a right-wing conservative legalist. I wasn't just right-wing and conservative. I was a legalist. I was raised in a military home, so that meant men never had long hair. So I remember from the platform telling a guy from one time, hey, it's time for you to get a haircut this week, well, because he had long hair. Now I'm just jealous, you know, of long hair. You know, I just wish I could grow it, you know. But uh, the legalist uses God's Word as a club to beat people into submission. But it's not a club. I mean, it does correct us, but it's a love letter. One of the churches I pastored, I had this dear, wonderful old saint who had served in World War II. 
And on Remembrance Day Sunday, you could hear him coming across the church parking lot because he had so many medals pinned to both sides of his jacket. He was a war hero. And I remember asking him one Sunday, Jack, when you were at the war, in the war and you got a letter from home, how did you treat that letter? Oh, pastor, he said, that letter was precious to me. I would read it and I would reread it and then I would fold it up and protect it and put it away so that I could pull it out and read it again. He said, because that might be the last word I ever hear from home. Well, if you start reading God's word as a collection of love letters instead of a club to beat people with, it'll change your life because you'll see how much God loves us and has provided for us. It's the anchor for our soul. It's what gets us through the storms. Because storms come. You're either in one, going through one, coming out of one, getting ready to go back into the next one. Now, I live on the East Coast. I've been here while Fiona crossed my beach. Now, I'm 150 feet from the water, which is awesome. Because I will be beachfront eventually. All of my neighbors on the front had some issues and some damage because of you know, 12 foot storm surge that comes across. And, and we just got the edge of it. I mean, millions and millions and millions of dollars worth of damage. But I was quite curious to watch one of the guys who has a sailboat in the little marina around the corner from us because they, they couldn't get all the boats out of the marina in time. Because sailboats, unlike a powerboat that you just drive up onto a trailer and pull it away, have to be hooked on with a crane and lifted up and put on a big cradle and then moved. So he decided that his sailboat would be safer outside of the marina, out in the bay. And so he went out and he anchored himself in the bay. And he was putting live updates on Facebook, so I was quite curious to... Watch to see how this 28-foot or so sailboat would do in these massive waves. He said it was a rough night. Didn't get much sleep. But my anchor held. There's rough nights coming, folks. There's difficult days for us. But our anchor will hold. But we need to know it. We need to know it. If you abide in me, Christ-centered, and my words abide in you, Bible-anchored, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. We're going to be a praying people, a praying people. Now, again, in this context, is Jesus really saying, ask anything and I'll do it? Is that a guarantee? Is that a promise? If that were absolutely true the way we often interpret it or the way a lot of our false teachers interpret it, there would be no poor people in this room. Because wouldn't we all just say, God, a little extra money would come in handy. None of us would have rebellious children because we'd just say, Lord, you said. No, in its context... Look at it. If you abide in me, we're Christ-centered. And my words abide in you, we're anchored by his truth. Then we can ask whatever we want, and he'll do it, because we will never ask for anything that he doesn't want. Because we'll pray back the truth of his word. 
I, I don't have time for this this morning, but you need to know that everything in the New Testament about prayer is communal. I challenge you to find anything that's not. See, as rugged individualists as the Western world, we believe prayer is private and personal. You know, and the King James Version didn't help us when it said, go into your closet and pray. So you're supposed to hang out with your good clothes? No. The, the word closet in the King James Version is translated in the New American Standard Version and in several others, inner room. And in King James's day, the king's closet was a big meeting space. It was an inner room. It wasn't where he hung his robes. And so the picture for us there is to go into our closet as the church of Jesus Christ come into our closet. That's this room. So that the things we pray together in secret will be answered and rewarded and blessed openly out there in public. Because the model prayer is our Father, not my Father. So every prayer is private and is personal, but it's also corporate, so we get to agree with you as we pray. That's why we started the 6-4 Fellowship. That's why I retired early to launch Strategic Renewal Canada to try to see prayer come back into the church because it's missing. A few years ago, I was with a group of pastors in the state of Tennessee, and they were still bemoaning the fact that there was no prayer in their public school. And I let them go on for some time. Of course, as a Canadian, I don't remember prayer ever happening in public school uh, in my lifetime. A few years, I went to a Catholic school in Halifax when my dad was posted there, uh, and they would have uh, you know prayers before service be, uh, service <laughs> school began. The torture began, uh, you know, and then we would do all of that kind of stuff together. But but to pray. So these poor pastors are bemoaning the fact that I finally chimed in and said, you know, it really doesn't bother me that there's no prayer in school. Well, in the deep south, that's like speaking heresy. And so they said, why doesn't it bother you? I said, well, there's no prayer in your church. Why should there be prayer in school? Prayer in most churches across our nation today have become transition points to get a worship team on the platform or off the platform to get somebody else on. And that's about it. Most churches don't have a prayer event or a prayer meeting. And I'm not talking about the old type of prayer meeting that I grew up with. Because that's the type of prayer meeting that will drive people away from prayer. So the prayer meeting I grew up with and that I started with as a pastor was we got together, we sang three hymns, I did a 30-minute Bible study, we took 20 minutes worth of prayer requests, and then finally our time was done, so Brother Dave, would you close in prayer? And that was a prayer meeting. No, that's not a prayer meeting, that's a Bible study with a hymn sing and 20 minutes of gossip. Because I don't need to hear your prayer request to pray for your request. We spent so much time as God's people praying over stupid things, if I can be really honest with you this morning, because I may never come back. Um, well, I mean, I'll come back to see my kids, but Pastor Chris may never invite me back. Um, we, if we spend as much time praying for lost people to get saved as we do old saints out of heaven... I mean, I have people come to me and say, Pastor, would you please pray for my 96-year-old grandmother? Okay, what do you want me to pray for? Well, she's in the hospital, and it looks like she might be dying. Okay, what do you want me to pray for? Because, you know, I'm curious. Well, nine times out of ten, they want me to pray for healing. 
I'm thinking, why? She's 96 years old. No, 96-year-old people are important. But if they love Jesus, they're ready to go to heaven, and I haven't met a 96-year-old who wants to spend another day here. They want to go. And so why don't we pray that they go gently and God be gracious to us? If we prayed that hard for lost people to get saved, what difference would it make? So there's a place for request, but that's the only part of prayer that we know. So if we're going to experience personal and corporate renewal, we need to abide Christ-centered. We need to be a Bible-anchored people. It's God's Word. The storms come. People have looked at me different times and said, oh, you know, your life has been so blessed. You haven't, weathered, you haven't had any storms. If they only knew, if they only knew the storms we faced in private. Bible-anchored. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. There would be a praying people that we would enjoy that sweet communion and conversation with God and we'd be quiet long enough in His presence to hear Him. Then Jesus goes on. Verse 8. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. If we're going to experience personal renewal, we will be a fruit-bearing people. A fruit-bearing people. There's, there's visible fruit. Now, people have said to me all of my pastoral career, when I would say something about an individual or we would try to do church discipline, is, oh, you can't judge. You can't judge their heart. You can't. Absolutely true. I can't judge anybody's heart. But I can inspect the fruit of their life. And if there's no fruit, one must question whether there's been a heart change. Now, this word fruit here has twofold application for us. It certainly has a reference to the fruit of the Spirit, that nine-piece fruit of the Spirit that the Spirit of the living God is responsible to produce in you and in me. And as we live out the first part of these few verses, we will experience that on an ongoing renewal basis. You know, that, that love is joy, peace, patience, gentleness, long-suffering, meekness. It, he, the Spirit of God will do that in us. So if you're an impatient person, you need to surrender your life today because that's not of the Spirit of God. If you're a highly critical person, you need to surrender your life to Jesus Christ today because that's not of the Spirit of God. That's not part of the fruit of the Spirit. Nowhere is the gift of sarcasm listed anywhere in the New Testament. I mean, I've looked for it, believe me, because I can rather enjoy some of that myself. The fruit of the Spirit, but the fruit of the growth of abiding in Jesus Christ, the natural response of that is evangelism. If I'm abiding in Christ, I'm in His Word, I'm praying, the overflow of that will have me share the good news of Jesus Christ with lost and dying people in all sorts of wonderful places and in places where you often don't even dream could happen. And so we are to be a fruit-bearing people. So let me ask you this. Who are you intentionally praying for to come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? I mean, I keep a list of a half dozen people that I pray for, and then I look for ways to build into their lives. I look for opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. 
One of those guys I've been praying for for years now is one of my neighbors. I've known him almost all of my life. Grew up in a godly home. His parents were wonderful people. They took me to Sunday school and church as a boy uh, at the beach because when my family would go to the cottage, when I'd get out of school, my mom and the four boys, there was four of us, we'd get on a train, didn't matter where we lived, and we didn't have a car until I was 15 years old. We'd get on a train and we'd go to the city of Moncton and my grandparents would pick us up and take us to the beach and drop us off. And there we were. You know, you put shoes on your feet on Sunday. It was the only day you ever had shoes on because you lived at the beach. And this wonderful, dear old couple would take us to Sunday school and church with them Sunday in and Sunday out. Uh, It was wonderful. But their son has rejected everything to do with the gospel. Everything. Nice neighbor. Desperate alcoholic. A few years ago, his wife drowned right out in front of our place. And I was with him on the beach as they took her in the ambulance. Next day, I'm talking with him. I'm always looking for ways to build into his life. I went over to see him. And I said, Murray, do you have any plans? First words out of his mouth, Lindsay, you know I'm not a religious man. I said, I'm your neighbor. You've known me all of my life because he's older than I am. I just came to see if there was something I could do. And he collapsed in my arms, cried like a baby. Later that day, I saw him. We live only a couple hundred feet apart. I said, what are you thinking about? Well, I've decided I'm going to do a visitation. No funeral, though, just a visitation. Okay, I'll be there. Next morning, he came to me and said, would you say a few words at the visitation? I don't want you to preach. I don't want you to use the Bible. I don't want you to pray. I said, I'd be honored to. So we were driving to the funeral home. My wife said to me, what are you going to say? I said, I still haven't quite figured it out. Because I've worked too hard on a relationship to mess it up. But God's called me to do this. And I have to be true to who I am, who Christ has made me to be. So I started this way. I said, you know, in times like these, for me, I'm driven deeper into my faith. I said, there's an obscure little verse of Scripture. I didn't even give the address for it. And I quoted it. And I spoke for about 10 minutes, wove the gospel all the way through it. Every neighbor on the beach heard the gospel that day. You look for opportunities. You don't force it if the Spirit of God shuts it down, but you look for opportunities. We are to be a fruit-bearing people. The late Dr. John Moore who wrote the wonderful hymn. He wrote over 600 hymns, but the wonderful hymn, Burdens Are Lifted at Calvary. I don't know if you know that hymn or not, but uh, John was a Scottish evangelist, Canadian pastor. He was a dear friend, went to be with the Lord a few years ago. But he said to me one time, we were together doing a prophecy conference. And he said, you know, Lindsay, I planted an apple tree in my backyard. And I did everything they told me to do. I fertilized it, and I watered it, and I pruned it, and I talked to it. And he said, and it didn't produce any apples. The next year, I watered it and pruned it and fertilized it and talked to it. It didn't produce any apples. 
The third year I looked at it and I watered it and pruned it and fertilized it, and then I looked at it and said this, and his wonderful Scottish accent said, you produce fruit this year or you're coming out of the ground. He didn't plant a fruit tree for shade. He planted it for fruit. Jesus didn't plant you here to be an ornament that takes up a seat. He's planted you here to produce fruit for His glory. And notice, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. Much fruit. He's called all of us to do the work of the evangelist, even if we're not by giftedness evangelists. And then he goes on. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. We need to be motivated by the love of God. A love-motivated life. So if we're going to abide in Him, Christ-centeredness, and we're going to be anchored by His Word, that'll make us a praying people who will pray back the truth of Scripture to Him. Doing that, then, we're being filled with His Spirit. We're going to produce much fruit for His glory. We're going to become people who are motivated by love and the love of God. Think of the love of God for people. We often find ourselves criticizing and critiquing people who are different than we are. It's easy to love people who are the same as we are. I mean, it's easy for me to love people who love a good steak. You know? I mean, vegetarians, on the other hand, I mean, my goodness. They need our prayers. <laughs> they need to be one. Something needs to happen because I believe we're all going to be vegetarians in heaven, so that's why I eat steak now. An old native friend of mine said to me, vegetarian is just an old Indian word for poor hunter. You know? <laughs> I like that translation. It's easy to love people who are like us. But what about those who disagree with us? What about those who live a lifestyle the exact opposite of us? So how about those who find themselves in the grip of the LGBTQ plus community. Now, please don't misinterpret my statements as approval of the community. People need Jesus, whether they're straight or gay. People need Jesus no matter what addictions they've gone through. People need Jesus. It doesn't matter how far their rebellion has taken them. And I will never get an opportunity to win them if all I do is sit back and criticize them and condemn them. Jesus said, I didn't come to condemn this world because it's condemned already. But I came to seek and to save that which is lost. See, healthy people don't need doctors. Sick people do. So we are here as the church of Jesus Christ to reach the worst of our culture. Now, I am convinced of this one thing. If COVID has taught me anything, it's taught me that we, the church, have forgotten how to love 
biblically. We have forgotten how to love one another biblically because we draw sides. For the first time in my pastoral or ministerial career, I was thrilled not to be the pastor of a church. Because there's not a pastor in this country who could make a right decision for two years. If they said, we're going to do this, there was a group against them. If they said, we're going to do that, that group was against them. Then those two groups were against each other. They were sitting on opposite sides of the church, and we, we had all sorts of events that were designed for this or that or the other thing and had nothing to do with the truth of the Word of God or the gospel. We spent more time in the last two years criticizing and critiquing our governments than doing the one thing the Word of God commands us to do for our governments. Pray. We need to learn how to love one another. It doesn't mean we always agree. But we've forgotten culturally even how to have a disagreement and still like each other. Now, Brother Dave Meisner over here, I've known Dave for several years now, Dave has some very strong opinions, if you didn't know that. We don't always agree, do we, Dave? I think most of the time we do. Most of the time we do. But we don't always agree. I'm sure we can find some things we disagree on. My, my son-in-law has some very strong opinions. We don't always agree. Now, I'm a little more cautious with my son-in-law, because he's my son-in-law. You know? I want him to come to my funeral. You know? Because I'm preaching my own funeral. That's one of my family jokes for years. You know, the video is going to start with, if you're watching this, it means that I'm dead. <laughs> and there's a few things I've been wanting to say. <laughs> you know? But we need to learn to love people. And it can be a challenge. But someone's got to cuddle up to the porcupine. It's a love-motivated life. When I was five years old, I ran away from home for the first time successfully. I ran away from home several times as a child um, because off and on, I would live with my grandparents. And my grandparents were more like parents to me than my own parents. My dad was gone most of the time. He was in the Navy. And so he would, at that point, you know, the Navy is good to their people now. But when I was a kid, my dad would go to sea for a whole year, come home for three or four weeks vacation, and then be gone again. So I really didn't know my dad until I was 13, 13 and a half when he got out of the Navy. And so before that, I would run away to be with my grandparents. They lived in Moncton. We would be in Halifax at a land posting or Cornwallis, Nova Scotia, somewhere in there. Because if you're in the Canadian Navy, there's only two coasts that you're going to live on. That's all there is to it. And my dad's whole career was on the East Coast. And so one time when my grandparents had come for a visit, I decided that I would hide under their stuff before they left. And so it was time for them to leave that no one could find me. And I was in the back of that 63 Impala underneath all of their stuff. And they headed for home. And home for them was about a four-hour drive away. Remember, no internet, no cell phones, none of those kinds of things. I waited under that stuff until I knew that they were far enough away they wouldn't turn around. And so I finally popped up, just about gave my grandmother a heart attack. They stopped in Wentworth Valley, Nova Scotia to use a pay phone. Some of you can Google that later to find out what that is. To call them, called my parents, they called my mother, they said, we found them, we got them, we're keeping them. You're looking at one of the original homeschoolers. The school system sent my homework, and for three months I did school at my grandmother's kitchen table. 
But my grandmother would say to me, Lindsay, why don't you take this, whatever it was she was making that day, it might be pickles, it might be a homemade loaf of bread, to over across the street to Mrs. McFarland. Mrs. McFarland was a wonderful dear old lady who lived across the street from my grandmother, and most of her own family didn't ever hang around her. But I would go over, and the people in the neighborhood would say, isn't he a good boy? He goes and spends time with dear old Mrs. McFarland when no one else does. Here's what nobody knew. Mrs. McFarland had the biggest box of chocolates I'd ever seen in my life. And when I'd go over to see her, she'd open up the box of chocolates and say, Lindsay, help yourself. See, it had nothing to do with my love for my grandmother. It had nothing to do with my love for Mrs. McFarland. It had everything to do with a deep abiding love for chocolate. May I suggest that as adults, we're not necessarily much different than we are as kids. But our motivation must change. It can no longer be the self-seeking self-pleasure. Our motivation has got to be the love of Christ, who looked over the city and wept because he saw them as being without a shepherd. When's the last time you wept as you prayed over the city of Red Deer? When's the last time you wept as you prayed for that lost son or daughter? When's the last time you wept when you prayed for your lost parents? We need to be motivated by the love of Christ that was so compelling it sent him to the cross. So if you abide in me, Christ-centered, and my words abide in you, Bible-anchored, ask whatever you wish. We're going to be a praying people, and it'll be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. We're going to be a fruit-bearing people. As the Father has loved me, so if I loved you, abide in my love. We're going to be a love-motivated people. But there's one more thing before we're done. Notice he goes on in verse 11, says, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. We are to be a joyful people. A joyful people. So I, I, that's why I believe humor in church is a good thing. That's why I, I love to laugh. Uh, I, I laugh sometimes at inappropriate places, but I laugh um, because things catch me funny. After 43 years of ministry, you tend to develop a little bit of a dark sense of humor. So, Brother Chris, if you don't have that already, it's coming. Uh, and then I used to volunteer as a police chaplain, uh, which helps you develop the dark side of life uh, as part of that. But we need to be a joyful people. But we need to notice that there's a difference between joy and happiness. C.S. Lewis said, happiness is in our control, but joy never is. See, happiness, and we tend to use those words interchangeably, but they're not really interchangeable. Happiness is temporary. Lots of things can make me happy. Watching my grandson win gold yesterday made me happy. Good steak, medium well, baked potato, sour cream makes me happy. Good fellowship that I enjoyed with your pastor the other day, getting to know him, and believe it or not, over a salad made me happy. But it was a Cobb salad, so it had ham and eggs in it, you know, but you, know, you got to be careful, you know, you don't want to slip and fall. Um, those things can make me happy, you know. Lots of things make me happy. Drinking my coffee first thing in the morning, 
watching the sunrise come up over the Northumberland Strait on a beautiful, calm day, reading my Bible, sitting there, watching the sun. That makes me happy. But joy, joy is what you experience even in the darkest of nights. When my son walked through incredible season of rebellion, there wasn't a lot of things that made me happy. But I did experience joy in the middle of that. The end of November, the year 2000, at the age of 68, my father took his last breath on this planet. I was with him. There was nothing happy about that moment. From my position, even talking to God about it, it was way too quick and way too early. But God's plan is perfect. I knew that. But your head and your heart don't always line up. But as I stood by his casket at the front of the church and participated in his funeral service, I wasn't happy. But I had joy. Because I remember the day when I had been invited to a church near my hometown to preach an evangelistic crusade. And my dad came every night of that event. And on the last night of that evangelistic crusade, when I gave the invitation, my dad publicly acknowledged Jesus Christ as his personal Lord and Savior. So I knew that he wasn't there. That was just his earth suit. That my dad was in the presence of the Lord. Enjoying life like I have not. You fast forward 18 years to the day, November the 30th, 2018. I was with my mother who took her last breath. And in that moment of unconsciousness just before the last breath on the very last note of the last refrain of how great thou art, she stepped into the presence of the Lord. Again, no happiness, but lots of joy. Joy-filled I've given you these things, Jesus says, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. We should be joyful even in the dark nights. Now, one more thing just before we close. Notice that the sentence or the verse 7 begins with this wonderful little word, if. I love verses that start this way. If. You abide in me. Somehow, in the sovereign plan of a holy God, he has permitted you and he has permitted me to make some decisions. And the decision we get to make today is, will we walk in the steps he has invited us to walk in? Will we honor him 
by the surrender and submission of our life because he is so worthy of every ounce of our devotion? Or will we just meander through life and be considered by others that nominal Christian instead of the one that is the normal Christian who is set on fire for the cause of Jesus Christ? Renewal to a degree has everything to do with the sovereign hand of God and everything to do with the ability he gave you and me to make a choice. I cannot cause a revival to come in my life or your life, but I can choose to set the sail so that should the Spirit of the living God blow out the winds of revival, I'm ready. Will you be ready? Let's pray. And while we're praying, I am going to call the worship team to come back up as well. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, I pray today that there may be those here who really don't know Jesus, and we didn't share a lot of the gospel story today. But I pray, God, if you have pricked their heart and they know they need the Savior, that today would be the day of salvation, where they would recognize that Jesus Christ loved them enough that he died on the cross for them, rose again victoriously three days later, ascended to your right hand where he now intercedes for us, and he invites us to come into relationship. But God, I do pray for your people, the ones who name the name of Jesus, and pray that today their heart would be, revive me, O God. Do it again. Do it new. Your will be done in my life. That would be our plea, O God. I pray this in the wonderful and holy name of Jesus. Amen. Now, this may not always be the practice for your church family, but it's almost always mine. We're going to stand together and we're going to sing a song a song of invitation. I'm going to invite Pastor Chris and I think the elders to come down to the front. If you're here this morning and while we're singing this song, you would say, you Lindsay, I need to experience renewal. I'd like someone to pray for me. I'd like someone to pray with me. Then I'm going to encourage you to take the bold step just to leave your seat and come down front. And let these men pray for you. If there's a big crowd, I'll start praying with people too. Uh, we can stay all day. doesn't matter. We can get others. You might be here and say, I've just got such an issue in my own heart and life. I need someone to pray with me. Come. This space is free and available for whatever God wants to accomplish in your heart. So let's stand together as your pastor and the elders come. And if you have a need, don't even wait for the song to start. Just start coming right now. We'll pray for you.